This summer we have preached on why we do what we do on Sunday mornings, and in this series on relationships, we have shifted our focus to the sort of community we are between Sunday mornings. It's my prayer that the Lord would use both of these series to lay a healthy foundation for our church as we transition from difficult pandemic ministry into the future God has prepared for us. So thus far in our series on relationships, we've thought about friendship, marriage, singleness. Surely there are more types of relationships that would be helpful for us to reflect on. Being a parent, a grandparent even, an employer, an employee, maybe it would even be helpful to think about how to be a good enemy. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, saying that you're going to have enemies in your life, but what he does is he redirects the way we treat those enemies. Maybe like the world we'll have enemies, but unlike the world we will love and sacrificially serve our enemies. The possibilities are endless. But rather than thinking through all these different relationships one could be in, we turn our attention this morning to building a relationship toolbox. Together, hopefully, we will acquire biblical skills to help us cultivate healthy relationships in whatever relationship we may find ourselves. In the weeks that follow, we'll think about walking through conflict, extending forgiveness, and even experiencing grief when life and relationships are painful, when we lose those with whom we have spent our lives. Every relationship has at least one thing in common. It's not easy. Conflict in a fallen world is inevitable. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James for one. Quarrels and fights happen because our passions are at war within us. Wars within us lead to wars outside us. So how do we live well in a world where conflict is inevitable? This is not really a sermon for deep conflict mediation, though perhaps some principles are transferable. We're going to think more next week about extending forgiveness as it's a massive concept that deserves its own week. And Jesus has much to say about the necessity of forgiveness in the Christian life. This morning, I want us to simply consider how we can live faithfully in a world where conflict is inevitable. How we can live faithfully in a world where passions at war within us cause fights with those around us, where expectations go unmet and conflict ensues. The Apostle Paul and the way he addresses one particular situation in the Philippian church can help us learn to live well in a world where conflict is inevitable. This morning we'll go through five principles for living with the presence of conflict. If you're taking notes, these five principles will be the outline of my sermon. First, be helpful. Be helpful. Second, be joyful. Be joyful. Third, be reasonable. Be reasonable. Fourth, be prayerful. And fifth and finally, be thoughtful. Be helpful, be joyful, be reasonable, be prayerful, and be thoughtful. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sentki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women 
who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, that's a, you know, I said syntyche, but I can't say reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One time, Pastor Farmer and I went on a trip together, and I left my Tacoma, which I sold for a Prius. You're welcome for saving the world. Uh, we left my Tacoma at the Fort Hill Park and Ride overnight. Don't recommend it. And so we get back from the trip, and we notice uh, I turn my, my car on, and the gas tank is empty. And I had just filled it up like a day before. And so I'm like, that's weird. And so I step out of the car. I don't know what moved me to do that, but I see like oil stain type, like gasoline stains all over the place. And so I have enough fumes to like coast down to uh, the dealership where I bought the car. And they take pictures. Somebody had drilled a hole in the gas tank of my truck. No idea why you would do something like that, but they did. And so, of course, I, I post about it on Facebook. Why would you not post about your gas tank getting drilled into on Facebook? And so it goes like semi-viral. Uh, so somebody from Channel 13 is in my DMs asking if I would be willing to tell my story about the gas tank being drilled into. I didn't respond because I thought, that's not what I want to be known for. Like, I don't want to be like, oh, that pastor downtown, yeah, I saw him on the news. He had the gas tank of his truck he got drilled into. Did you see that? I don't want to be known as the guy who's left his truck at Fort Hill Park and Ride and been vandalized by somebody who's got nothing better to do. I don't want to be known for that. Yodia and Sinti know what it's like to be known for something they don't want to be known for. I mean, Philippians, the whole letter, is known for being one of the more upbeat books of the Bible. But here are two sisters that are not seeing eye to eye at the moment, and we know their names today because they're upset with each other. That is a tough break. So be glad the canon of Scripture is closed now that we are walking through our problems. And it's extra tough because the letter from Paul would likely come from some emissary to the church where presumably the elders would read it aloud to the congregation. I imagine Yodia is sitting in the front of the room. I imagine Syntyche is as far away from Yodia as she could possibly be. The elders get the letter. Everyone gathers around. He begins to read. And things are going well. You know, a lot of encouragement, a lot of good stuff. But boom, we get towards the end and the elephant in the room is getting addressed. The conflict between Euodia and Syntyche that may be unspoken in the church is spoken by the Apostle Paul because it is itself a grave threat to the church. 
The apostle cannot ignore conflict in the church, but he addresses it graciously and clearly. Hear his language in verse 1 that immediately precedes his counsel. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I love you guys. I'm so proud of you. You're my joy and crown. Yodia, Syntyche, sisters. I love you guys so much, I plead with you to agree in the Lord. And this is not just the problem of Euodia and Syntyche. He says, church, help these women. These women have labored side by side with me, he says. These, labor, these women have labored with me, with Clement, with the rest of the church. They are co-laborers in the gospel, and Paul says their names are written in the book of life. Church, here's what you can do in light of the conflict between Yodia and Sinski. You can help. You can be helpful. When we encounter conflict, there are an, a numerous temptations that we may face, and some of us are more drawn to some temptations, and others of us are more drawn to other temptations. One temptation is to just talk about it with other people. One temptation is just to gossip. So-and-so is upset with so-and-so, so the last person I want to go to about this is so-and-so and so-and-so. But something needs to be done, so I'm going to talk to everyone else about the problem. I don't think she likes her very much. I don't know. They, I haven't seen them talk to each other in the foyer in months. This person never signs up to serve in this capacity. I wonder if it's because they got beef with, with so-and-so. Gossip does not help. Or you might not be tempted to talk about it because you actually just get so freaked out by it, you could be tempted to completely ignore conflict. I know in pastoral ministry, conflict is an ever-present reality. One of the best books I read in seminary was a book called The Peacemaking Pastor. And in The Peacemaking Pastor, they, uh, the authors argue that like, we often come to conflict in the church as if it's, a, uh, if it's a sort of distraction from what we're supposed to be doing, when in reality, we're called to be peacemakers too. And that's like the, the, the heart of our very ministry. And so sometimes, because there's just cycles and seasons of somebody being upset with somebody and it never really ends, we can just get numb to it or we can just get tired of it. And so it's almost like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear about this because if I hear about this, I might feel like we have to do something about it. And I'm so scarred or I'm so tired or I'm so afraid from the last time we did this that I don't want to do it again. And so there's a, a sense in which you can hear about conflict. Some people love it because it gives them something to talk about. Other people, they just shut down and say, no, I can't, I can't do this. I'm just going to ignore this conflict and we're not going to deal with it. We're not going to address it because it hurts to deal with it. It, it hurts to address it. Just like gossip, ignorance does not help conflict either. Don't ignore it. Don't gossip about it. But don't be overcome by it. Conflict, if you're ever in a season of conflict with a spouse or a friend or a church member or a coworker, one of the, the worst things about conflict is that it can be all-consuming. It can be like the only thing you think about. It can be the only thing you, you talk about. So don't ignore conflict. Don't gossip about conflict, but be helpful in conflict. And don't be consumed by conflict. Be helpful, we've seen, and be joyful. Look in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't let conflict become the dominant mode of being in your relationships, even when it exists. Notice that Paul is not consumed by the conflict between Yodia and Zentiki. It's couched by gospel affirmations. You are my joy. You are my jewel and my crown. That means like when I stand before God, like the work I'm giving him is you. It's the, it's the, it's the ministry we've done together. You are my co-laborer. You're my partner. You're my friend, my brother, my sister. Agree in the Lord that this instance of conflict does not lead Paul to write a book about conflict. It leads Paul to write a letter about the gospel. It leads him to write a letter of encouragement. Don't let the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche chart the course for the Philippian church. We are commanded to rejoice. The Christian should be the most joyful person in the world. We are loved by God. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are co-laborers with all the saints in the ministry. Brother, sister, here is my plea. Agree in the Lord. Do not let the presence of conflict or the potential of conflict rob you of your God-given joy. Notice the command has a, a sort of um, conditional statement, right? Rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice in your relationships. Rejoice in things going well. Rejoice in circumstance, but to rejoice in the Lord. We should be joyful in the midst of conflict and in a world that gets all riled up. We must be reasonable. Moving quickly to our third point, we are to be helpful, we are to be joyful, and we are to be Reasonable, verse 5. Let your reasonableness, let your winsomeness be known to everyone. The Apostle Paul commands us to be a reasonable people. Now, uh, for those of you who are very online, this is uh, one of about 100,000 contentious points between Christians today. Like how reasonable should we try to be or how just blunt and uh, not caring about how we're received should we be? And of course, everyone rallies around, well, this is how I think it should be. This is how I think it should be. Reasonableness is often castigated as being like susceptible to moral compromise or just, oh, he's so reasonable. He's just being weak. He's not willing to say what's plain and true or just, oh, they're just trying to cozy up to those outside of the faith. But Paul commands it for a reason. There are two ways we can get this wrong. There are two ways we can fall off this mountain. You can put too much faith in your own reasonableness and you can throw out the very command to be reasonable altogether. You can, you can put too much stock in your reasonableness or you can just pretend like the Apostle Paul didn't write this and completely ignore it. What does it look like to put too much stock in your own reasonableness? To put too much stock in your own reasonableness means to assume that other Christians are always the problem, right? Oh, well, you would surely get the gospel if you didn't hear it from some idiot like that. If you heard the gospel from me and all of my skill and intellect and brains and communication, then surely you would believe the gospel. We're not like those dumb mouth breathers. We are sophisticated and intellectual. 
And we can put so much stock in our own reasonableness that we can forget that no one receives faith. It's not a gift from God. That, that our reasonableness, our winsomeness, as necessary as it is, it converts no one. This is the danger of being a status Christian in our day. That I'll be in as long as it gets me kudos from culture and no one thinks I'm weird. I'm good until that happens. So we can put too much faith in our own reasonableness. We can assume that our reasonableness is what saves people. If only I could sit down with people and they'd believe me. I can share it in a way that no one else in the history of Christianity ever has. Brother, sister, as one who has thought that, it does not happen. But there has been a backlash to Christians who strive for winsomeness and reasonableness that some Christians have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. You can put too little stock in reasonableness. If you're not reasonable, who in the world is going to trust you? If no one can trust you, how will they listen to you? More pointedly, if you're not reasonable, if you will not listen to anyone, if you are so blinded by tribal and partisan lenses that you won't call truth a truth whenever you hear it, if you won't listen to anyone share their heart, why in the world would anyone else listen to you share your heart? We should be a reasonable people. People who can dialogue without our heart rate getting really fast. People who can talk about tough topics. We should be the hardest people to offend on the planet. You should say, I, whenever I'm talking about something really tricky with, with, with Mason, I'm not saying you do think this or don't think this. I'm just saying you should think this. Whenever I talk about these hard things, it is, it's insane how much he can take before he gets mad. It's insane how much he can hear before he just loses his cool. We should be the least offendable and most reasonable people on the planet as we're guided by the Spirit of God. Because the apostle teaches, I think, that our reasonableness, reasonable with ourselves, reasonable with others, those in the faith, those outside the faith, is an apologetic. It's an apologetic. Our neighbors should look at us and say, yeah, we do not believe the same things about God in the world. We don't believe the same thing. Because we don't believe the same things about God, we don't believe the same things that it means to be human. And so because we don't have a shared belief about God, we don't have a shared belief about what it means to be human, we have a different vision for human flourishing. They might say, yeah, we disagree on all these things, but, but, but my neighbor is kind, decent, and reasonable. I think he's an idiot for believing someone rose from the dead, but I think he's kind, I think he's decent, and I think he's reasonable. Our reasonableness, our winsomeness saves no one. But it's a part of our testimony, a part of our life that God uses to communicate what it looks like when we obey King Jesus. Ignorance and partisan fury should not mark us more than kindness and reasonableness. We navigate conflict joyfully. We navigate conflict reasonably with our hopes of helping others, with hearts and minds set on Jesus. Look at the end of verse five, leading into verse six. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is at hand. The anxieties inside of us externalize themselves in some way. The anxieties and the angst inside of us, it, it comes out somehow 
It looks different for different people. But inner angst leads to outer angst every single time. But you need not be anxious and angsty all the time, Paul says. The things that often give rise to conflict, the anxiety and angst inside of us, like this is where we attack conflict, like at the bud, at the source. This is like preventive uh, conflict resolution. Instead of that anxiousness and angst that will externalize itself and cause quarrels and fights among us. Instead of that being the present things in your heart, like let that be the peace of God. Let that be replaced by prayer. Instead of being anxious, the apostle says, bring everything to God. Here is the promise. When you do that, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What a powerful picture. The peace of God will guard your heart. What is bothering you? What is keeping you up at night? What is changing the way you see that person at church? What is gnawing at you in that relationship with your spouse? What is that thought you cannot shake? When that thought comes, when that feeling comes, in that moment, just take it to God with words if you have them and tears if you don't. Because, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. He's here. He's present. He cares. And that changes everything about today. When you come to him in prayer and thanksgiving, it's like your heart upgrades its security guard. You and your rent-a-cop mind are replaced by the secret service of the Holy Spirit. The God of peace guards you in times of conflict and trouble. In the middle of life's fiercest storms, our Savior stills the seas of our hearts. I can think of no better news for those walking through conflict than this. The Lord is at hand. Let the peace of God guard your hearts and minds. Be prayerful. And fifth, be thoughtful. Verse eight. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, I was down in uh, Georgia this week for a meeting of the trustees of the North American Mission Board and uh, one of the vice presidents, Trevin Wax, who's over like content development. And I'm so glad he's there. He's just a clear thinker. He's reasonable, but convictional. Uh, he's a great leader. He was actually preaching this text. The sermons are very different. Just if you want to go listen and make sure I didn't, you know, copy it. Um, but he was preaching this text. And one thing he said really, really stuck out to me. He said, uh, in a staff meeting, he was preaching this text. He said, joyful Christians are not nitpickers. Joyful Christians are not nitpickers. I think that's such a good word because I have seen it true in my life and in our ministry. Listen, if your mind is set on conflict, then a life of conflict you will live. A joyful Christians, I don't think they set their minds on things that are wrong, really. Sure, you know, anticipating and accepting counterpoints they see ills in society and they strive to correct them. I mean, this passage, after all, it's kicked off by Paul seeing something wrong 
and addressing it. But as I alluded to earlier, he is not consumed by it. This is a letter about the gospel. This is a letter of encouragement. This is not a, here's everything Yodia did, here's everything Sintiki did, and here's your help as you figure out how you're going to handle these ladies. Small but important point. If your mind is set on controversy, then outrage will be the default mode of your being. If your mind is set on problems, then a critic you will remain. If your mind is set on things that are wrong, how will you ever be part of building something that's right? Brothers and sisters, there is no neutral ground in the battlefield of our mind. If your mind is not set on good things, it will drift to bad things or meaningless things. And this is the command of the apostle. Don't be consumed by conflict. Be filled with joy. Be prayerful. Be reasonable as you're walking through conflict. Be reasonable. Being reasonable means knowing that you could be wrong, that your friend could be the one that wronged somebody, that your kids could be the one that actually did something wrong. Like it, be reasonable as you're walking through conflict. Be prayerful because the Lord is at hand and the God of peace will, will guard your heart. He will stand watch over your mind and your heart, allowing what comes and goes. But what you've got to do is, is you've got to offensively fight with your mind to set your mind on good things. Because if you don't set your mind on good things, then your mind will drift to bad things or to meaningless things or to unimportant things. Think about that which is true, Paul says. Set your mind on truth. Think about that which is honorable. Think about that which is just and righteous. Think about that which is pure. Think about that which is lovely. Think about that which is commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. This is good wisdom for all of us in whatever season of life we may be in. Give your life to true, good, and beautiful things. Give your life to true, good, and beautiful things. Do good work. If you work with your hands, work with your hands well for the glory of God. If you work primarily with your mind, work with your mind well for the glory of God. If you work with your body or whatever, do it well for the glory of God. Read good books. Read good fiction books that tell stories of redemption. Read good theology books that help us think about things that are true and good and beautiful. Hike in beautiful mountains and walk on sandy seas. Build real relationships with people. Sacrificially love your friends. Serve your church when it's inconvenient. You'll have sign-ups in three weeks. Help your neighbor build something beautiful. Build a chair. Like build a table. Build, build something that works. Build something that's nice. Write a poem. Tell someone you love them. Sing in worship. Watch a world-class athlete perform a craft they've worked years to perfect and then get traded to a team that cares. Eat good food and praise God for it. This is our Father's world. And though the wrong feels us so strong, God is the ruler yet. Oh, friends, set your mind on the good, the true, and the beautiful. Be thoughtful in the best way possible. Nate and Lizzie, you guys can come on up.
It felt like my wedding. Nate and Lizzie were, uh, did the music at my wedding, so it feels like we're at the wedding again, so thank you. Don't ignore sin. Don't ignore conflict when it needs addressed. But don't set your heart and mind there. Don't fixate on all that's wrong, on all the things that you would fix. Like set your hearts and minds on Jesus and spend your time with the true, the good, and the beautiful. If we want to be a people who dwell on what's wrong, like we can do that. All of my flaws, all our church's flaws, we can fixate on them. And we can just wish they were different. Or we can trust the Lord that he is here. That as we labor in the gospel together, that we are building something good, something beautiful, something that we can give to God and say, these saints, this is our, my joy and my, my crown. We can think about the true, the good, and the beautiful. And when times of conflict come, we can try to be helpful. And when we're being helpful, we can be reasonable with each other to come to agreement in the Lord because the witness and work of the church is at stake. We can be prayerful because the Lord is at hand. We can be thoughtful. And in every season of our life, our church's life, your individual life, the life of your family, even the hard ones, we are commanded to rejoice. And in case you miss it, Paul says, again, I will say, rejoice. Verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in, I love that. What you have learned, heard, received, seen in me. That means Paul has preached it, he's lived it, he's taught it, and he's shown it. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. It's a fun word play from the apostle. I don't know if you caught it. Verse seven, the peace of God will guard you. Verse seven, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God will guard you and the God of peace will be with you. Conflict may be inevitable. And you can look out at the future of your marriage and that can wear you out. <laughs> you can look out at your friendships and that can wear you out. You can look out at church life and say, man, I... Whenever something hard comes, I'm just going to have to bow out. I can't do that again. But the God of peace is with us. Therefore, let us be helpful. Let us look for solutions. Let us work for peace and find resolution. Let us be a people who think clearly and reasonably. Let us be a people who extend grace and receive grace. Let us be a people who are joyful, thoughtful, and prayerful, whose hearts are guarded by the God of peace. Let's pray. Father, your word is alive and it cuts like a sword into the darkness of our hearts. It illuminates what is wrong and shows us what is right. And you invite us to walk that path with you. I pray for every Yodia and Syntyche in, in our congregation. If there be any that have animosity between them, that this morning would be the last morning. It's either gossiped about or ignored. That it would be the morning where Euodia and Syntyche find help, seek help, or approach one another to extend grace and forgiveness. I pray that we would be a people, as we walk through uncertain days with people who disagree on so many earthly levels, 
that we would be a counterculture, that we would be a contrast to our community because these things, they don't cause animosity between us because we agree in the Lord. We're bound together by a shared truth, a shared way, a shared life, and a shared love. And together, we're not lowering any standards. We're learning to live in the standard of Christ together. We're learning to live in a land of grace as those who need grace, those who extend grace, those who care about truth, righteousness, and justice. So Father, I pray that these principles for living in well with the presence of conflict, I pray that they would mark us. And I pray we would be your people in the world, a faithful picture of your love for sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.